please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And again, he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. That he taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Thus the reading of God's word. Well, this parable is commonly known as the parable of the sower. And some, many in fact, who have commented on it and preached on it have opted instead for the title, the parable of the soils, insisting that the emphasis falls on the soils instead of on the sower pointing to the various conditions of heart that the seed of the word falls upon and their varied responses to the word, as the Lord goes on to explain in his interpretation of the parable. However, while the parable does stress the human response to the word of God, in fact, it's even prefaced with a command that entails our response because he says in verse 3, listen, listen, behold, calling our attention and imploring us to incline our ear to a careful hearing of what he has to say. Yes, hearing and listening is very much stressed through the parable. However, Although it is stressing that human response to the word of God, I do believe this retitling of the parable misses the point. The parable of the sower is the best name for this parable. Because the central message of the parable in the light of the context of the gospel according to Mark is how the Messiah is coming in his kingdom and how he is preaching the word of God to establish and build up that kingdom that he came to bring. And although most people reject his message or yield an inadequate and unsaving response to that message, he is still accomplishing his mission. And such responses, even the rejections, were already contemplated and preordained in the purposes of God. In other words, the, unre the unreceptivity of human hearts to the Messiah's message 
doesn't frustrate his mission, but is actually as much a part of his purpose as anything else. That his word will bear fruit despite the rejection of the majority. And so it's not that the Messiah is coming to offer a kingdom and that the majority of people rejecting him thus frustrate his purpose and cause him to, you know, to, uh, to be thrust into some kind of anxiety, therefore, you know, necessitating the turning to some plan B. There is no plan B here. This is plan A. This is his mission. This is what he came to do. He knew how men would respond to his gospel. And there is only one sower. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. This parable is about him. The, par the sower that goes out to sow is none other than Christ proclaiming his kingdom. Well, some have taught that by extension, the sower is also anyone who spreads his word, which is true to a point. However, the sower of this parable in this context is always only the Lord Jesus Christ. When his messengers spread his word, he is the sovereign Lord who is working through them. He is the ultimate regal agent who is superseding their activity to ensure that his word is being disseminated and is accomplishing the purpose for which he sent it to perform. This means that when the servants of Christ accurately speak the gospel in his name, they are not speaking of their own accord, but Christ himself is speaking through them. He is still as much the sower sowing seed today as he was when he first told this parable 2,000 years ago. And people's response to the gospel message today is just as much a reception or rejection of Christ himself as if he himself were the one present speaking to them in the flesh. As he said to his disciples in Luke 10.16, He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. John Calvin said, When the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached, it is just as if he himself spoke to us and were living among us. Well, the parable of the sower establishes a paradigm for all the parables of the Lord. That's how biblical scholars often speak of this parable, as a paradigm. It's a kind of model or template that reveals unique features that distinguish our Lord's preferred method of teaching. First, it establishes a rhetorical pattern of his manner of communicating the truth. As such, parable constitutes a genre of communication whereby he relays the truth. It becomes a vehicle for the relation of the truth. And so here is the master teacher imparting the profoundest truths under the simplest symbolism using analogies from the natural world and from everyday life that were common to the experience of the crowds around him. It wasn't that his language was difficult. It wasn't that his jargon was technical. It wasn't that the concepts were too lofty, but he was teaching in simple illustrations and drawing analogies to common things around them, yet speaking of profound truths that the natural mind could not penetrate apart from the help and grace of the Spirit. But again, here is the master teacher. And never has there been a better teacher who combines such profundity of insight with simplicity of speech that resonated so deeply with the everyday man. Our Lord, in fact, is renowned for his use of the parable 
as a form of teaching. But in the second place, speaking of this uh, parable as a paradigm, this parable establishes a framework for envisaging the kingdom of God. Many of the parables have the purpose of illustrating how the kingdom of God was coming through the Messiah. They refuted common misunderstandings and clarified what the kingdom is and is not like. Alfred Eldersheim, that uh, famous Jewish historian, was a Christian, but was a historian of the Jews, explains that the first series of parables was spoken by the Lord, which exhibits the elementary truths concerning the planting of the kingdom of God, its development, reality, value, and final vindication. In this series of parables, especially in the parallel in Matthew chapter 13, which is more complete, the Lord is giving us a kind of full-orbed picture of what the kingdom of God looks like as it's coming. In the third place, this parable provides insight that helps us to interpret the rest of the parables of our Lord because it is one of the parables that is expressly, unambiguously interpreted by Jesus in the scriptures. Here we are shown principles of interpretation that we can apply to the rest of the parables, and namely to the parables that don't have an express interpretation that follows their communication. And so it's helpful for us to discern those principles. Fourth, and this is where it strikes close to home, this parable penetrates into the depths of our hearts. It illustrates the different responses to the gospel of the kingdom. And these responses are rooted in the soil of the condition of the hearts of men. Fifth, it calls for the response of discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the parables don't just come to us as teachings that shed light. They don't just illustrate general truths or broad biblical principles, but they come to us as gospel-centered demands that confront us with the master's call to venture into a life of faith and discipleship. They're calling us to embark on the voyage of faith as we journey toward the consummation of his kingdom. Every parable is meant to jolt us from our indifference. It's meant to shake us from our disregard to Christ. And it lays upon us the claims of his lordship. Every parable confronts us with the reality of his kingdom. Every parable constrains from everybody the response of faith or unbelief. And so this parable, as is the case with the other parables, calls us into encounter with Christ. It confronts us with the demands of Christ. It brings us into this kind of crisis of a, uh, that necessitates a decision. Will we believe or will we reject? Will we follow him or will we harden our hearts and turn away? Thus, every parable compels a response to Christ, whatever that response might be. And so today, as we consider this parable, here according to the words of our text, this serves as an introduction to this category of parables that are known as the parables of the kingdom. Next week, Lord willing, we will expound on the Lord's interpretation of this parable in verses 13 to 20. And we'll probe its practical import then for us as uh, hearers of the word of God. We'll do that in more detail. But consider here in the first place that the text relays to us the puzzle of the parable. That's my first major heading, the puzzle of the parable. Verse 1 tells us, 
And again, he began to teach by the sea. This, of course, is the Sea of Galilee, still in the region of Capernaum, probably just a short distance from Capernaum, between that and another village and somewhat in a what would be known as a wilderness region. And then it says, And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Now this would prevent the multitudes from pressing about him to touch him, as they were trying to do. It would disencumber the Lord from them so that he could focus on teaching. And that's what he came to do primarily, to teach and preach the kingdom of God. And as he sat in a little boat on the water, the multitude was gathered around, presumably on the slope of the hill going up from the water. And so the flatness of the water with the slope of the hill would serve as a natural amphitheater with inclined seating. The multitudes would be seated on this hill with inclined stadium-like seating and it would serve uh, to amplify the Lord's voice and to carry it potentially to thousands of people at a time. There is a famous place that is recognized today just outside of Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where the hill is sloped in such a perfect way that it would seat easily a few thousand people and uh, tour guides, they'll stand right there by the sea and they'll have the group sit on this hill and they'll just speak in a normal voice and the voice is just carried. And so it's like the Lord, the sovereign Lord of creation made this place just to serve as a natural theater for our Lord's proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. That place, by the way, is known as the Sower's Cove because many believe that that's where he taught the parable of the sower from. And verse 2 says that he taught them many things by parables. Parables. The Greek word, parabole, means to literally throw alongside or cast alongside, as in a simile or comparison. Like when an illustration is thrown alongside a teaching in order to elucidate it. That word, parabole, occurs 48 times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's absent from the Gospel of John. In Mark, it occurs 13 times, eight of which are found here in chapter 4. And so this chapter is Mark's compendium of the parables of Christ. And that word as it occurs in the scriptures is actually broader than what we typically call the parables of Christ. In the Bible, the word stems from the Hebrew word mashal. And that refers to any metaphorical teaching, analogy, figure of speech, illustration, similitude, proverb, maxim, or riddle. Such mashalim, or parables, broadly conceived, are common throughout the Old Testament. Moses was a master at using them. They fill the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the wisdom literature. Also the prophets. The prophets are full of them. They permeate Hebrew poetry. Well, the Holy Spirit filled his written word with these broad parables to season his teachings like salt, to make them more savory to our mind's eye, and to envelop his revelation to us with artistic beauty. Parables made up at least a third of our Lord's public teaching according to the Gospels. Thus, they're a central feature of his teaching as he stands firmly in the prophetic and wisdom traditions of the Hebrews. But more narrowly, we typically reserve the word parable for a group of specific stories that our Lord told. We think of the parable of the mustard seed 
or the parable of the ten virgins, or the parable of the prodigal son, and so forth. These more narrow parables are extended metaphors. That's what they are. Extended metaphors with vivid imagery drawn from everyday life intended to fix his teaching like nails into the minds of his disciples. A method of teaching that was very effective, especially in their culture where things spread primarily through word of mouth and oral tradition. Parables are earthly analogies with heavenly meaning. They are fictitious stories and sometimes even allegories that convey important lessons and theological truths. And so these parables in this narrower sense are somewhat of a unique feature to the teaching ministry of Christ. No prophet had ever used them so abundantly. And sure, there was Nathan's parable of the little ewe lamb that he told to David in 2 Samuel 12. There was Isaiah's parable of the vineyard in chapter 5 of his book. There was Ezekiel's parable of the eagle and the vine in chapter 17 of his book. But they are few and far between in the Old Testament. Christ uses parables much more abundantly, even prolifically. He probably used many more that are not recorded for us in the Gospels. And as Matthew 13 indicates, he did that to fulfill Psalm 78, which says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Parables were somewhat common among the first century rabbis. And I've been able to survey a good number of them, at least some that are uh, definitely from the second century. And I can testify to you that none of them are of the quality or caliber of Christ's. The rabbi's parables were far inferior, and they only served to illustrate commonly accepted truths, and they were, they were often rather contrived as well. But Christ's parables uttered, as the psalm says, things kept secret from the foundation of the world because they didn't just repackage already accepted truths, but they came as vehicles of new revelation from God. And each parable is a kind of not only a word picture, but a word puzzle. They're like puzzles that when we hear them, they puzzle us. And they just beg to be solved. It's like a Rubik's Cube. You know, as soon as you get one of those things in your hands, <laughs> you just got to try to figure it out. You might not have a clue how to solve it, but you know that there has to be a way to make sense of it and line up the colors on every side. And so you turn it and turn it and turn it over again. And you keep turning it until finally you either solve it or give up and reject it. Well, that's what the Lord's parables were like, especially to their first hearers. They needed to be turned over again in the mind, again and again, in order to discern and pan out their true meaning. When at once their meaning was discovered, they offered a flood of insight. And so they were like puzzles. And the Lord preferred to teach through parables in his wisdom in order to urge his people to strive after discernment. And that's our next major heading, the discernment of the parable. And so immediately after saying this parable, the Lord cries out in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He makes a distinction between those who hear audibly and those who hear with spiritual understanding. There's always the danger that his teaching may be somewhat grasped with the mind, but fail to pierce the heart. And in fact, such a casual, careless, superficial hearing has always been the more common 
of the two. The Lord isn't interested in professing disciples who merely affirm his teaching with mental assent or approval. What he's seeking is true disciples who incline their ears, who engage their hearts, who prostrate themselves before the authority of his doctrine, who bend their wills to a faith-enabled reception of the gospel of the kingdom into their hearts. That's what he's seeking. And so it's fitting that his declaration in verse 9 follows the utterance of the parable. Very fitting. Parables were calculated to elicit the response of the heart because they drew in their hearers in such a way that in order to penetrate the meaning of the parable, a mind and heart commitment to Christ was necessary. C.H. Dodd, famous scholar, said that a parable is, quote, a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its application to tease it into active thought, end quote. That's what the parables do. They are teasing our minds into active engagement and thought. The parable provoked further investigation, and it necessitated discernment in order to decipher its meaning. The parable served to provoke curiosity and contemplation from its hearers. R.W. Funk wrote that, Quote, the parable is not closed, so to speak, until the listener is drawn into it as participant, end quote. Because it came as an enigma, as a cryptic puzzle or riddle to be solved, the parable would spark interest and generate discussions. What did he mean by that? What did this detail mean? I think it means this. Well, I think it might mean that. It would impel hearers into further inquiry so that they could discover its meaning. It would elicit a more careful study of his doctrine. It would draw receptive hearers in, especially to crave all the more, to drink in more of the Lord's teaching. And thus a parable is a form of teaching that was conducive to the production of true disciples. It helped to spur people on to make the transition from superficial hearer to committed learner. Christ was the master teacher and that the content of his doctrine was impeccable and divine, but he was also the master pedagogue whose method of teaching it epitomized an effectiveness reflecting his absolute perfection, wisdom, and skill. And this, brethren, is what the parables of Christ should evoke from us no less than it did of their first hearers. It will not suffice just to read the word of God passively. You have to actively search it out. You have to actively yield your heart to its teaching. Merely seeking to understand it with your mind without applying it to your heart and life will never lead to a greater understanding, a true understanding of the things of God, but rather merely a mind understanding without a heart understanding is the pathway to religious deception. That's what happened with the scribes and the Pharisees. We should respond to the Lord's word like Samuel, who, when the Lord called him, said, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Because of who it is who is speaking the word, it bears an inherent authority that requires its recipients to humble themselves with a solicitousness to submit to it and a readiness to obey it. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. The Lord's teaching should be received, indeed, with that attitude of heart expressed so well by Augustine when he prayed, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command, 
And this means that the true disciple will not rest satisfied with a superficial understanding of the things of God. He or she will always be pressing on to know more, to learn more, so that in knowing more and more of the ways of God, their life may align more and more with the will of God. This is why one of the marks of true discipleship is a hunger for truth. You want to discern the difference between a true and false Christian. Which one is hungry for the truth? Which one can't get enough of the truth? Which one is just eager to learn more and more of the truth so that they may know more and more of Christ and implement his instruction in their lives? True disciples want to learn more of Christ because out of love and gratitude and joy for his salvation, they are eager to please him and honor him, and glorify him through a circumspect walk of practical obedience. They want to know all the details of his teaching so that they can follow it in all the details of their lives. And so in our text, the Lord Jesus is cutting through the facade of the superficial hearing of his word that was pervasive among the multitudes. And he's calling for true disciples to learn of him and to follow him and to be incorporated more intimately into this circle of his actual disciples. By the way, that's what a disciple means, a learner, a pupil, a student. And though Christ is not physically present among us, His word is no less present among us today because we have the scriptures. We are therefore called by our Lord, even in this very method and format of the parable by which he is speaking to us. We are called by him to be diligent, enduring, persevering, faithful students of the scriptures to read them daily and actively, to attend to their commands readily, to tremble before their authority with meekness and godly fear. And as was the case with the multitudes who heard the master's parables, we have to make it a habit to reflect and meditate on the meaning of the word. If you just read or hear the word without meditating on the word, your understanding will be unfruitful. Much of it will be cloaked to you, as it were, enigmatic, dark, obscure. Thomas Watson said, quote, the bee, speaking of the honeybee, the bee sucks the flower, then works it in the hive, and so turns it to honey. By reading, we suck the flower of the word, But by meditation, we work it in the hive of our mind and so turn it to sweet profit. Profit that's sweeter than honey. The Spirit grants discernment to those who retain Christ's teaching in their minds, who entertain it, who pray over it, who reflect upon it, who apply it, who practice it. Solomon puts it like this to the book of Proverbs. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That is the only attitude of heart that gleans profit from the parables that truly benefits from the teaching of God's word. It's the attitude that confesses, Lord, I want ears to hear, but I realize I am so dark, I am so foolish by nature I cannot have ears to hear unless you grant it. It's an attitude of dependence on God, of trusting him with all our heart and leaning not on our own understanding, 
of acknowledging him in all our ways so that he would direct our paths. It's an attitude of constant repentance, which at its root, by the way, means to change one's mind. As we turn from our own thoughts and seek to have our minds renewed and patterned after the mind of Christ. Well, the carnal mind and the natural understanding are impotent to grasp the spiritual meaning and true application of the scriptures. Doesn't matter how bright or intelligent someone might be, without the grace of the Spirit, there will be no true penetration into the mysteries of the Word of God with any true knowledge that intersects with spiritual experience. 1 Corinthians 2.4, Paul said, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And this is why the Lord says to his disciples in verse 11, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. To you, to my true disciples, it has been given to understand my teaching. Well, that's a divine passive construction in the Greek, divine passive construction, meaning that the one who grants this understanding is God, only God. To the outsiders and casual hearers, their understanding remains obscure. And the revelation of God came to them cloaked in darkness that was impossible for them to comprehend with spiritual discernment. It was impossible for them to commune with it in their spiritual experience. The parabolic teachings of Christ, therefore, only further confuted and confounded this category of hearers that he describes as those on the outside. It caused them to stumble at the stumbling stone that had be broken in pieces by the judgment of God, a point to which I'll return in a moment, right after we consider what the mystery of the parable is. That's our third major heading, the mystery of the parable, verses 10 to 11. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, which, by the way, you notice those words, those around him with the twelve. That's unique to Mark's gospel. Matthew and Luke share the same story, but do not include the words, those around him, with the twelve. Matthew and Luke just talk about the twelve being those who are in this intimate communion with the Lord to hear the impartation of his teaching. But Mark is emphasizing that this inner circle of true disciples, well, it's not merely limited to the 12. There are others as well. And so it's not just that the 12 are the true disciples and the entire multitude is not, but rather there is a mixed uh, kind of category going on here. Uh, those who are true hearers and true disciples, they are the ones who truly receive and have ears to hear. It goes beyond the twelve. And he said to them, to, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. To the disciples who knew Christ and believed in him, the parables clarified the mysteries of the kingdom. The parables illustrated the reality of the kingdom and gave to the disciples greater light and understanding. I love the way James Edwards puts this. He said, parables are like stained glass windows in a cathedral, dull and lifeless from the outside, but brilliant and radiant from within. Or to borrow an analogy from Jesus, he says, they are like fishing. There is a hook hidden in the bait. The hook is the word of God, which is personified in Jesus. 
Parables cannot be understood apart from the one who tells them. Parables are not simply good advice, he says. They are good news, for the life of Jesus is itself a parable. Indeed, the greatest parable, end quote. In other words, knowing and believing in the person and work of Christ is the key to cracking the mystery of the parables. The parables thus cloaked in mystery confronted everybody with the need, again, to respond in Christ or to respond to Christ in faith. They brought their hearers to the critical moment of decision about him. And another scholar explained mystery like this. It is a secret that the kingdom of God has come in the person and words and works of Jesus. That is a secret because God has chosen to reveal himself indirectly and in a veiled way. The incarnate word is not obvious. Only faith could recognize the Son of God in the lowly figure of Jesus of Nazareth. The secret of the kingdom of God, he says, is the secret of the person of Jesus. End quote. It's a secret of the king coming in his kingdom, even though the king looked more like a peasant than a king. It's a secret of the kingdom being established through the proclamation of the gospel, even though the kingdom had no tangible, concrete, visible, or geopolitical form. Discerning the true identity and mission of the Messiah was the key to discerning the meaning of the parables. And thus it was the key to grasping the true nature of the kingdom of God and its redemptive modality, and therefore was also the key to entering into the kingdom of God and partaking of its grace and salvation. Which leads me to our final main point, the purpose of the parable. The purpose of the parable. And so having spoken of his purpose relative to his disciples in verse 11, to reveal to them the mysteries of the kingdom, to illustrate the reality to the kingdom, to give them even more light than what they already had, he goes on to say in verses 11b to 12, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. There is therefore a twofold purpose to the parables to reveal and conceal. That's what they do reveal and conceal. To reveal the truth more fully to those who believe and to conceal the truth from those whose response to the gospel is unbelief. So with this statement, the Lord reveals why he adopted this measure of speaking in parables. Prior to this point in his ministry, he had, be, he had been uh, declaring the truth plainly and publicly. We see that again in Mark 1.15 where he comes proclaiming, the time is at hand. Here, the, the, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. It was open. It was perspicuous. It was manifest. It was clear. It, it was unambiguous. There is no doubt about what he was saying. But now he begins to enshroud his teaching with enigma. He had preached and demonstrated the king, kingdom of God openly prior to this. And those who heard him had responded to him in one way or another, with either faith or unbelief. They were aligning themselves with one of two classes, with either his disciples or with the party of the Pharisees and with their positions regarding Christ. Believers were saying, this has to be the Messiah. And those aligning with the Pharisees were saying, this has to be the devil. And so the lines in the sand had been drawn. 
The good shepherd was now separating the sheep from the goats. And he's using parabolic teaching to cut this division more clearly with the sword of his word. As Edwards again notes, the sense of verses 11 to 12 is that Jesus' parables confirm the states of people's hearts. Insiders who are with Jesus will be given the understanding of the mystery and outsiders who are not with Jesus will be confirmed in their unbelief. They will be solidified. They will be cemented in their unbelief. And the parable is an instrument that will serve to accomplish that. And so the parables were a medium of grace to the one and an instrument of hardening to the other. As the Lord says down in verse 25 of Mark 4, whoever has, by which he means faith and understanding, whoever has to him more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Or in John 9.39, he put it like this, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And the Pharisees got offended and said, Lord, are you saying that about us? To confirm this purpose, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6, here in verse 11, seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Very important words. The construction of that, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven, that's an adverbial purpose clause in the Greek indicating, again, purpose, an intended goal or outcome. That's what the grammar and the syntax of the text is clearly indicating. Jesus spoke in parables so that, or with the purpose that, this class of hearers would never turn to him and be forgiven. And that might be a hard pill to swallow, but it is what the text states. And this is what we call the doctrine of divine reprobation. And it should make us tremble. It really should. The sovereign God as an act of his holiness and justice, abandons the objects of his wrath to the consequences of their sin and unbelief. And the prophetic message of Jesus, just like that of Isaiah, effects this outcome by its very proclamation. It is an effective agent of the power of God that manifests both his salvation to one category of hearers and his judgment to a, the other category. John 12, 37 to 40, the apostle there quotes the same passage from Isaiah 6, 10. But there John expands on that purpose clause. And he actually sticks more closely to a literal rendi rendering of the Hebrew of Isaiah showing that God is the one who blinds them as a judicial act. The Hebrew is very clear about this, and this is how John renders it. He says, although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And this is what John says, therefore they could not believe. Not only that they would not, but that they could not believe because Isaiah said again, here's a literal rendering of the Hebrew, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And so the effect of the blinding of God is a judicial act results in their being eternally sealed 
in the same condition as those who in the previous passage in Mark chapter 3 had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The gospel separates the wheat from the chaff. Isaiah 52, 7 defines the message of the gospel in these words, your God reigns. That's a message of the gospel according to Isaiah. Your God reigns. Well, Christ had come to reign in his sovereignty, to wield his royal scepter through his preaching, to hold out the scepter of clemency to the penitent, and to slam down the scepter of his wrath upon the unrepentant. Or in the words of John the Baptist, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's how he came, with a winnowing fan, with a sovereign scepter, to exercise the prerogative of the sovereign God over the souls and destinies of men. Your eternity is in his hands, entirely in his hands, and in his hands alone. So the words that the Lord quotes in Mark 4.11, they were originally spoken to Isaiah during his own prophetic commissioning. Isaiah was called to preach to a hardened and stiff-necked people who would only reject his message. And their own hardened hearts resulted in the judgment of further hardening by God. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 11.8. When he quotes from Isaiah 29 and says, Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Their initial rejection of the truth resulted in God handing them over by a judicial act to even stronger delusion. And I know that when we are confronted with God's sovereignty in the scriptures, some of us can have a really hard time accepting it. But this is what you need to know. Yes, God is sovereign in salvation, and yes, God is also sovereign in damnation. Nonetheless, his sovereignty by no means undermines our responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. That comes to us ever and always as the imperative of Christ to us. Repent and believe the gospel. And appended to that divine command is also the immutable divine promise spoken of by the Apostle Paul in Acts 16, which says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever believes will be saved. It's impossible to believe and not be forgiven and not be saved. That promise is always good. And so divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they are both upheld. God's sovereignty by no means undermines our responsibility. Now we, when we hear these truths in the scriptures, we tend to want to relieve the tension between his sovereignty and our responsibility by denying the one to uphold the other. But Mark, in fact, if you study his gospel, he never relaxes that tension between the two. He maintains the tension. He upholds both truths together all the way through his gospel account. And the tension between those twin truths actually climaxes right in the heart of the climax of the gospel, which is the passion narrative, which sinful men according to their own whims and will, take a, assume upon themselves the moral culpability of murdering the Son of God. And yet it was the sovereign God who ordained that it should be so to bring about good and salvation for his people. In Mark 14, 21, when he speaks of Judas Iscariot's rejection of Jesus, 
in fulfillment of the sovereign predetermined plan of God? This is what Jesus says there. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. So there it was preordained, just as it was written. It was written that Judas Iscariot, in fact, would betray him, would reject him, would seal himself in sin and unbelief, would be eternally lost. It was written beforehand in the Psalms. But then he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And so it was Judas who of his own will betrayed the Son of God and therefore incurred the woe of the divine imprecation of the eternal judgment of God. And that's why he says it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So it was written beforehand, predetermined, but Judas was fully responsible and fully culpable for his rejection of Christ. But you see, divine sovereignty and human responsibility both fully maintain. And so we must bow to the teaching of the word, even when it crosses our pride, even when it strips us from the notion that we are captains of our own ship and masters of our own fate, even when it humbles us to the dust before the glory and majesty of God, even when it strips us from all hope and confidence in the flesh and shows us that our only hope for life and salvation is in the Lord our God alone. And so let me close with these insightful words by D.A. Carson, who explains this well. He says, The assumption that God may judicially harden men and women frequently surfaces in the New Testament. If a superficial reading finds this harsh, manipulative, even robotic, four things must constantly be borne in mind. First, God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. Second, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. Third, God's sovereignty in these matters can also be a cause for hope. For if he is not sovereign in these areas, then there is little point in petitioning him for help. While if he is sovereign, then the anguished pleas of believers throughout the history of the church make sense. As they have appealed to God to do what they themselves are powerless to do and what only he can do. And fourth, God's sovereign hardening of the people, whether in Isaiah's day or in the days of Christ, that's a, a stage in what Isaiah 28 calls God's strange work that brings about God's ultimate redemptive purposes to pass. And so the sovereign God, he's fulfilling his purposes. And that's what the parables of Christ we're doing, bringing his redemptive purposes to pass for his own sovereign glory. And so let's bow before him in prayer. Oh, Father, we do acknowledge your mighty hand, and we do, Father, confess that we need you in every way, shape, and form. We utterly depend on you. We cry out to you. We look to you, Lord. We do not desire to be like the casual, careless, or superficial hearers, Lord, but we desire to hang on every precious word that comes from your holy mouth, to tremble before it, Lord, and to receive greater and greater light, Father. And so please help us to be true disciples of Christ and to walk with him with that persevering faith and discipleship that bears 
thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold fruit for your glory. In his name we do pray. Amen.